I have a, I have a friend. Um, he's an older gay man who is a, an activist in New York City, actually in the ACT UP era. Who he lives in a small village in somewhere in the Midwest. I'm not going to mention the town. Um, until recently, he was the only out person in his village, uh, population less than 500. Uh, he was caring for his father there who had um, COPD. And when his dad died recently, I tried to send him some good, um, good Irish whiskey. And it turns out you can't order online spirits and send them anywhere you want to uh, because different states won't, won't allow that. So he lived in a state where you couldn't send send uh, spirits online. So I, I called, I had, a, I had like an old school idea inside my head. I called like the local liquor store in the town. Every town has them. And, and I asked if they could uh, deliver it to him. And could I pay over the phone by credit? And I mentioned my friend's name and the older gentleman who answered the phone uh, said, well, I'm the village president, and I hadn't heard that his father died. I know right where he lives. I'll, I'll have my daughter call you tomorrow to get your credit card info, information. I, I don't mess with cell phones, let alone know how to do that. Um, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> small towns, villages, um, old school, everyone knows everyone. And it turns out that that village was... Um, what scholars think was about the size of Nazareth when Jesus and his family lived there in the northern region of, of uh, Israel. So just before the uh, pandemic, I traveled uh, to the Holy Land with Julia and her Episcopeeps. I was an Episcopal church thing, uh, go to the Holy Land thing, and the, the best uh, place that we saw, a lot of it was kind of cheesy and consumery and, and some was authentic and some was, you know, not so sure. But we visited a private excavation site in Nazareth, which today is a large city. It's the largest um, Arab population city in Israel. And um, we, there was a family dwelling that had been dug up from that very period when Jesus was in Nazareth. And that's a pretty historically accurate thing. I mean, he was known as Jesus of Nazareth, not only in the canonical gospels, but in other writings of that period. And, and um, it was really something to stand in a place, you know, all carved out of stone and whatnot. Um, and it's knowing that it's quite likely, given the size of that village, that he ran around there as a little boy, like some of your kids cooped up at home running around with his cousins or whoever. And it, it somehow just made the reality of his family life uh, vivid and real. Uh, Emily spoke about uh, kinship last Sunday. Why do we say your kinship come, your will be done in the Lord's Prayer? I highly recommend that um, sermon if you didn't get a chance to hear it last Sunday. So I know many of, of you are experiencing intensified family conflict or tension, or, or we could say village tension, if we think of our village as our extended family. Um, you know, the people we grew up with, I'm on a Facebook group with my uh, Henry Ford High School graduates from the, when I graduated, or the maybe like the 500 or so people you follow on a Facebook feed or whatever. And I don't need to rehearse the reasons for this um, acute tension that many of us are experiencing in these settings. Um, many of you feel your family or your village is inhabiting what feels like an 
alternative reality. It's like a nationalist cult, a kind of a mind lock thing going on. And the Gospels depict Jesus in a state actually of profound alienation from his village, including his own family. So the, the idealization of the Holy Family, Mary, Mother, and Jesus, you know, most of these images come to us from Christmas, from the Nativity story, and then Christmas carols, and crush scenes, and religious art, and all of this tends to just overlay and obscure how conflicted Jesus was within his own family and his uh, village. Um, what, what do we know about his family? Well, many are surprised to know that the Gospels mentioned uh, Jesus had six siblings, four brothers, James, Joseph, it's a variant of Joseph, Simon, Jude, and two uh, unnamed sisters, always unnamed. The, the women so frequently get unnamed in uh, ancient documents, including the Bible. Um, so in Aramaic, which was the mother tongue of Jesus, there was no word to distinguish siblings from cousins. It really isn't a big difference in uh, traditional cultures, uh, but the Greek, the New Testament was written in Greek. Um, the word for brother and sister are used here in, in uh, I think it's in Mark 6 and Matthew 13, where this, this verse is about his siblings. And there's actually a very early tradition that, that could well have been uh, derived from uh, people who knew people who knew uh, of Jesus when he was alive, that says that Joseph, the, the father of Jesus, the husband of Mary, was a, a widower with adult children. And the one tradition that's quite early says he married uh, Mary, who would have been like Miriam in the Hebrew, um, who was probably a, a young teenager at the time. And one tradition says that Joseph um, uh, was 80 years old when he married Mary. So that's, people talk about the biblical family. <laughs> that's like a, oh my gosh. So Hope read the only portion in the gospels concerning um, Jesus' childhood after infancy. There are some stories in other non-canonical gospels, uh, but this is the only one we have in the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's in Luke chapter 2, and it tells about Mary and Joseph returning to Nazareth after they were on pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Um, they lose track of their 12-year-old Jesus, and um, it takes days for them to notice and then return to Jerusalem to find him. They find him in the temple courts, conversing with the elders there. And upon seeing him, Mary calls out, how could you do this to us? We, we were worried sick. And Jesus says, well, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Uh, he doesn't take on his mother's anxiety. He doesn't feel responsible for it. Uh, and then he returns with them to Nazareth. And this is often cited um, uh, to illustrate a family system approach to anxiety. Uh, family systems would say that anxiety flows between people, like uh, fear running through a herd of mammals. And the way to unplug from this kind of anxiety when you're part of an anxious system, a family system where people are upset and distressed and anxious, is to self-define, as Jesus does here, um, and then if possible, stay connected, as Jesus does. 
So, you know, contemporary, you know, situation, if we, we can self-define by saying, I think our president spews racist views knowing it plays well. That's a self-defining statement. It's not making an argument or even asking anyone to agree with you. It's just a simple unveiling of how you see things. Uh, because how we see things is invisible to others unless we use our words. So self-defining, though, can be a, a hard thing to do in sometimes in our closest relationships. And sometimes that's the only thing that prevents a family or a village from turning into a mob is the willingness of dissenters to speak up and break the spell of assumed consensus. And while these self-defining moves are an important way to unplug from the anxiety of a family system, they don't unplug us from the sadness or the pain or the distress when our family or our larger village harbors toxic views that lead to harmful deeds. And this is something many of us are facing. Um, you know, misery does need company. And, and I found some company in noticing how Jesus experienced all this. Um, you know, chronic alienation in our kinship circle gives us a feeling of being alone in the world. And sometimes that leads into feeling alone from God or bereft of God. So there, there's a real consolation I found in seeing how, how the rabbi had to deal with this. Uh, the next time we see him interacting with his family in the Gospels, he's a mature adult this time, and it's gotten worse. Um, it's in Mark chapter 3, um, and this is a very um, psychologically astute portion of the apostolic writings. Um, I'll read it for us. Then he went home and the crowd came together again. So he, he's teaching, it's in his public teaching phase, so that they could not even eat. When his family heard of it, they went out to restrain him for people were saying he has gone out of his mind. They came because people were saying he's gone out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebub. And by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. Beelzebub was the name of a demonic figure. And then this portion is followed by several more verses de detailing his defense against uh, this accusation coming at him, again, from powerful elders from Jerusalem. And then it goes back to his family. Then his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, you know, come here. Uh, it's a power move, right? <laughs> a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. So, at the very time he feels under threat from powerful outside forces centered in his nation's capital, forces coming at him with false accusations, just then his family arrives, obviously having internalized what people are saying, this kind of propaganda, the Kool-Aid people are drinking, and they think he's deceived, he's, he's not in his right mind. But this time he doesn't go home with them. I mean, if anything, we would say that in this phase of his public um, ministry, he's disconnecting from his family for a time. 
And there doesn't seem to be any, like, at least emotional reconnection until we see Mary at the cross um, on Good Friday. But for now, his family, it's, it's like they're too toxic. And there he is without their support where he, where he needs it the most. And he seems not to have a single family member, like an aunt, an uncle, a sibling, a cousin, that he can confide in who understands him. So what, what degree of alienation are we talking about here with, between Jesus and his family? Well, well it was pretty bad. Um, I think it's helpful to read Mark 3 in light of uh, Luke chapter 4. This is an episode um, where Jesus was back in his hometown synagogue, um, and he's asked to read a portion of the, of the Torah, of the scripture, and he does, and he comments on it. And it ends with the villagers congealing in a, like a great offense against him, and they're threatening his life, actually. So no family member, and they would have been present, uh, rises to his defense at this time. They, they were surely present, so we can infer it was bad. So just as some of our families have internalized a toxic, a harmful ideology, and it's like the well of family relationships is, is, seems poisoned by it, uh, he too was caught up in a cultural conflict fueled by powerful voices in the nation's capital, resonating in his village, and affecting his own family. So what does he do for support now in Mark chapter 3? His teaching and the people around him and his family, you know, beckons him out of there. Um, and they're obviously in a posture of opposition to him. Well, he begins then to regard others, um, like safer people, as his family. Um, he turns to those gathered near him in the room where he's teaching. Behold, my, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, my mother. He mentions mother twice, sisters once. Uh, he doesn't mention fathers uh, there. Um, I wonder if there were no older men uh, in the group assembled. I don't know. Um, and he's, he, you know, we often read Jesus at the remove of Jesus, the, you know, the icon, the, you know, the cross is as uh, well known an icon as the Shell, you know, Shell Oil Company thing around the world. Um, but he's not just in teaching mode here. Um, I think we always, I think it's like he needs the people in the room to know that he regards them, that he needs them as family now because his own family um, can't be functioning as family to him. So, you know, the thing is, I, as I get older, I, um, I realize how much family realigns over time. Uh, you know, our, our experience of family can seem so static when we're in one season. It's like a Michigan winter, you know, the way it is and will always be. But over a lifetime, there can be epic shifts in how our family is aligned. Um, I grew up in the same house in Detroit with a mother, a father, two sisters. Um, but by the age of 18, my sisters had both moved to New York City and I was in Ann Arbor um, which was a, a long distance phone call away from Detroit. So you may be called once a week at most from my parents. Uh, and I'm forming a new family. I'm a dad at that time. And in my new version of like nuclear family in Ann Arbor, it's just like gradual expansion over the years. But there's a lot of stability. Um, I remember in that time when I was asked, you know, by the 
you go to the doctor's office and they're checking your data. Is your address still, you know, 3204 or whatever, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yep, boring is the post office. Said this little, you know, charming retort. Boring is the post office. Um, then the kids grow up, move out. Uh, most move far away. Wife dies. I'm alone in the house with a bunch of empty bedrooms. Uh, even the post office, we now know, is not immune to change. So after two years alone, I marry Julia. I move into her house. I'm stepdad to Oceana, who's entering the ninth grade at that time. Um, I'm in an entirely different family with their own history that I didn't share. Um, I think it was close to the wedding, um, and Oceana's uh, brother, Andrew, was in town from the UK, and I'm backing out of the driveway, having visited them, and I, I look at the three of them, Julia, Andrew, Oceana, who are family to each other, soon to be my family. None of us is biologically re related to anyone else. Andrew was, Andrew was Julia's first husband's son from a previous marriage. Oceana was adopted, um, but Andrew's father, uh, Julia's first wife, um, uh, Andrew's father, Richard, had died, uh, Oceana's dad, and soon his mother, Margaret, would die. Um, so they were really it for each other. They were family, and I was to be part of this family. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of old by this time. You know, for many reasons, um, death, divorce, uh, people growing up, moving away, and like big social and cultural disruptions that strain our family village relationships, such as we're in the middle of, for many reasons, families are disrupted and kinship uh, ties are reconstituted, they're adjusted, they reconfigure. Um, I think about how the Gospel of John uh, doesn't go into this tension with Nazareth and Jesus' um, uh, family so much. Uh, but John, who seems more like emotionally tuned into Jesus, tells how Jesus had a close friendship with uh, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Um, they were the closest thing he had to peer friends. So these three lived in Bethany. It was a village on the outskirts of Jerusalem, Mount of Olives, Bethany just down the way. His travels there to Jerusalem are, are always tense. They're conflict-ridden. So it was handy to have these close friends nearby. And Jesus himself was in a non-traditional status as a single man in his 30s. Um, his friends, um, Martha, Mary, and um, Lazarus were also single, mature adults. Um, Together, these four mature single adults are in a society where marriage was more or less forced on people. I mean, to be of marriageable age and circumstance and not to marry was like not putting your hand over your heart for the Pledge of Allegiance at the ball game. So sociologically, at least for, for their time, these four were a kind of, we would say a queer family, a, a kinship group inhabiting a minority space in the in the social fabric they were part of. So how do we see this social situation of Jesus at this time affecting his experience of the divine? So the, the two realms um, don't function independently. This, our social realm and our experience of the divine are very closely related. 
Um, I was first drawn to Rabbi Jesus and the radical revolutionary Jesus of the Gospels in the early 1970s, like 1971. It's a time of great cultural turbulence. This period now is reminding me of the late 60s and early 70s, uh, when my family's social connections were in a turbulent transition to young adulthood, uh, and when my psyche, for reasons I don't need to go into here, I needed a hero real bad. I, I needed a male hero real bad. So our, our spirituality is affected by our surrounding experience and our, and our emotional needs. And it seems to me at this time um, for Jesus, when his family village intimacy was so disrupted that Jesus is leaning into because he needed an intimately personal connection with the divine. Um, Yes, he was known for regarding God as Abba, dear father. Um, was it unrelated, though, to the fact that he lost his father early in life or that his father was old enough to be his grandfather or maybe even his great-grandfather? Um, there's also indications, that, and you would learn about this in the Divine Feminine class that Susan's um, leading, that Jesus, um, in his spirituality, developed a close identification with Sophia, Greek for wisdom, a divine feminine uh, wisdom presence in the Hebrew tradition. There's every reason to think that Jesus had mystical experience of the divine feminine in this period. So why wouldn't his experiences of the divine be shaped by his deep human need in a time of alienation from his family and his village connections. You know, the, you know, the heart of spirituality is fostering, um, and it's the work of spirituality, to foster an inner vision, a sense of connection through the portals of intellect and emotion and imagination and prayer and meditation and relationship and music and arts and literature and nature. Um, silence, exercise, yoga, woodworking, gardening, farming, hunting, fishing, shout out to Pete Miller, with divine or transcendent love. So human love is our primary portal into divine love. It has to be. But human love is subject to the human condition. And alone it can reveal, but it can also distort and aspects of our closest family relationships at times can distort or confuse our understanding of the divine as much as offer a window into the divine. And so the work of spirituality is to open other channels, other portals, uh, dig other wells into the depths of, of love, of divine love. And new portals can come to us through times of turbulence and deprivation. Um, you know, over the quarantine, I felt a certain um, Wilson family love deprivation. Like, um, all, all but one of my kids is states away. I, I missed a few planned visits since March, so we were going to reconnect, and now that's not been possible. Um, so I'm just coming back. Yesterday, Julie and I drove out to meet Grace in, in Pittsburgh. She and her boyfriend, Aaron, um, drove from D.C., and we met in Pittsburgh at the University of Pittsburgh as a like park area. And we spent three or four hours together. Um, 
And it was just awesome. I mean, you know, like uh, I, I wasn't planning on hugging Grace, but I, then I remembered that Molly Morton in her Facebook uh, feed uh, went to see her families and she posted a New York Times article about how to have a socially distanced hug with masks. And I didn't read the article, but I figured out how to do it, you know, and like, well, work for Molly, it'll work for me. So I set it up, Grace and I put out our masks and we, you know, our heads face the other direction. And I'm like, Julia, take a picture. I want to post this picture in my office, you know, and I'm, I hug Grace and I hold on to her. And of course, I start crying and, you know, couldn't even say goodbye with my my words, I was like, oh my God, that sounds so good. Um, so I've been experiencing some of this. Um, and I've also noticed lately a new for me experience of like the ancestors uh, coming into my praying space. So my circumstances allow me the luxury of taking like a half hour or so, um, usually before dinner prep, most days, and I have a glass of wine and I do my little divine hours, evening prayers, maybe take five or 10 minutes of headspace uh, time. And uh, it's, a, it's a meditation app. Uh, and then I do what feels to me like stupid or slow thinking, um, where I just kind of sit there and, um, and it's, it's like a less verbal awareness or space. And sometimes, and it's been happening more, only since quarantine started, I have a sense of loved ones who've gone on before. Um, that's for me, that's Glenn, my dad, Blanche, my mom, Nancy, uh, my late wife, Phyllis Tickle, an old uh, kind of a spiritual friend. Um, sometimes it's figures I'm, I'm reading about in scripture. And often there's a feeling of, um, of a friend who call it uh, the fierce protection of the ancestors. Um, uh, I feel a sense of consolation. I feel like sometimes just wisdom coming to me. Um, so like certain disruptions or deprivations can also function as cracks through which the spirit seeps in. So done talking, let's, um, let's take a couple of minutes for a meditative time. And if your circumstances allow um, there at home, um, you might wanna get comfortable in your chair um, let's take a, like two minutes um, and begin by focusing for a moment on the feeling uh, of being just grounded um, to the earth. So just notice the weight of the body pressing down on the chair, the arms on the lap or on the arms of the chair. Um, notice especially the feet on the floor, your connection to the to the earth, a sense of being um, grounded, held in place. So there's a line in Psalm uh, 72. It's a lovely depiction of the messianic presence, or to make it simpler, just divine presence. And the line goes like this, may he come down like rain or dew on falling on newly mown grass. Or if it works better, may she come down like rain falling on newly mown grass, or they come down. I like this image when I'm feeling my nerves are just jangled, um, like the raw edge of a newly mown 
blade of grass where you're just like, we use this phrase, our nerves are bleeding. You know, I think of a blade of grass newly cut like that, only a whole bunch of blades of grass. And then this line, may God come down like rain or dew on newly mown grass. And then with that image of of a protective moisture, rain or dew falling on the mown grass, I just suggest you imagine a protective person with you sitting there. Use your imagination. Um, Is there someone you have experienced a kind of divine presence from, a reassuring presence, a protective presence? an understanding presence. This could be a living person, or often one who's passed on. We don't have conflicts with those who have passed on. A grandparent, an aunt, a favorite teacher, could be a beloved pet. Sometimes a bird or a deer, an eagle or a hawk can come to represent a divine presence to us. Whatever that is to you, just rest your imagination, your awareness, on their presence with you. And we'll just take another half minute to sit with that. Amen.